Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Somehow, in 2024, we still live in a time where white people in power, mostly men, are trying to erase the contributions of black people, and especially black women, to our history. Our guest today, Dr. Jen Jackson, is asserting those feminist histories and lessons in her new book, Black Women Taught Us, A History of Black Feminism. Every Wednesday as I grew up, our tiny two-bedroom home became a concert hall for a majestic group of gospel singers. I'll never forget the way it felt as an undergrad when I first learned that there was no Black feminist history course offered at my university. This elite institution of higher education had attracted me because it boasted a world-renowned faculty and curricula that was supposedly prepared me for the broader world. Quite busy indeed. As an educator, a journalist, and fierce pioneer for civil rights, Wall spent the majority of her life crusading for justice and equality for black people, as well as women in general, from the late 1800s to the early 20th century. One of my primary motivations in writing Black Women's Products was to reveal a history that has long been erased, watered down, whitewashed, and removed from the archives. And even when it is acknowledged, it's often misremembered and simply not acknowledged by mainstream institutions, especially the institutions that matter most. Hi, I'm Jen M. Jackson, and I'm fighting to make sure that Black women's voices are heard. Sorry, not sorry. Jen, hi, welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Syracuse University. I teach young people about Black politics, about the American government and how it works. So I've been very busy for the past five years since I graduated from Chicago. And I teach about gender and politics and Black feminism. So my work in the classroom is deeply related to the work of this book. I also am an author of the book Black Women Taught Us, and I do organizing work outside of the classroom. You start Black Women Taught Us with a young you, which I love, surrounded by a gospel choir. Tell us about that choir and how they came to lead off the book. I grew up in East Oakland, the Bay Area, just off of San Francisco, and a predominantly Black area. My mother and most of my family, they're singers. So I was born, they jokingly say that I was almost born in the choir stand at Evergreen Missionary Baptist Church. So my house, my mother had a baby grand piano. So the upright was always in the living room. And so my family came over to sing often at our house. This also meant that my mother's singing group used our very small home. It was a two-bedroom home to rehearse every single Wednesday. So I, I brought this up in the book because this book is called Black Women Taught Us. And I wanted to make clear that when I say Black Women Taught Us, I don't just mean the Black women we encounter in our academic settings and the ones we read about in the books we pick up from Barnes and Noble, the Black women we encounter every single day. My earliest 
Black feminist teachers were those women in my living room. Told me that I needed to cook the chicken longer and make sure it wasn't red at the bone. My auntie Donna Faye told me how to put my lipstick on and wear earrings, which I'm not wearing right now, so I hope she never sees it. Those were the lessons, and they carried throughout my life. So even as I did pick up those academic lessons, I kept those with me as well, and they're just as important. One of my favorite people that comes across frequently in the book is Audre Lorde. I'm just going to read this great quote that you have from her. It says, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. And I'm sitting in a classroom right now reading this to you and talking about the difference in my students between academic world and real world. But I think it might be helpful because I can hear the trolls out there screaming, oh, not only are you yelling about feminism, but you're yelling about black feminism. They say it in that stupid voice. I know that. But I think it might be helpful for our listeners to hear the difference. How do you define black feminism and separate it as its own entity from feminism? Yeah, I love this question. And it, it, it has its own chronological time period that happens, right? We know that first wave feminism was uh, largely concerned with white European women separating themselves from their husbands. And we know second wave feminism was in the, the 1960s during the civil rights era. There were lots of women who were also thinking about their own rights, their own freedoms, what it meant to have equal pay. And as we moved into the 1980s and 90s, we the third wave of feminism, and there was more conversation around sexual liberation and what those politics look like. So for Black women, even though Black women's politics and feminisms have existed during the entire time, during all of those waves, the acknowledgement of Black feminist ethos really started happening around the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We started getting more focus on folks' work with Alice Walker and Bell Hooks. We got intersectionality as a terminology in 1989 and 1991. So Black feminism has always been concerned with understanding the unique ways that Black women and Black non-male folks, so femme, non-binary people, encounter unique racism and unique sexism based on the intersections of both their race and gender simultaneously. And what we can also root this in is exclusions from larger movements. I talk about this in the book with a lot of the folks I focus on. Ida B. Wells experienced this or No Hurston experienced this in her life. But these women were not included in mass movements for Black struggle, right? There were Black men who were struggling for rights for Black people and said, you all have to take a back seat. There were white women who were struggling for the rights of all women and told them as well, you have to take a back seat. So folks like Audre Lorde who said, actually, we're going to fight for ourselves. We believe that the folks who are going to fight for us consistently is us. And that's where Black feminism emerges. It's this desire to fight for the concerns of Black women and not to have to always take a vaccine. This informal knowledge network and storytelling community introduced me to the central tenets of Black feminism before I had the language or the training to utter those words in that sequence. But no one tells you, at least no one told me, that these quiet, quotidian experiences, these everyday Black feminisms, matter. I love how the book is broken into chapters that discuss the lessons particular Black women throughout history have imparted into your lives. And I think it may be interesting to just run through a few of them. For instance, the first chapter is called Harriet Jacobs Taught Me About Freedom. So tell us about Harriet Jacobs. Oh, Harriet Jacobs. Unfortunately, she's another one of those women who I didn't learn about growing up. And I actually knew nothing about until I was much older. 
she wrote a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And it actually details her experiences as a young enslaved woman who didn't realize she was enslaved until after she was sold at six years old. She had proximity to her white slave master because of her fairer skin. Her family had cousins who were essentially white slave masters. But she found out that she was enslaved when her ownership changed to a man named Dr. Flint. And this slave master was very violent and he pressured her frequently for sexual abuse. And he never actually achieved it, but she wrote about his efforts. And she was writing to Northern white. She was writing to Northern abolitionists and to Northern white women to say, this is the experience when you are a Black enslaved woman. This is what it means when you are at the intersections of Blackness and gender in this peculiar institution. Her efforts to articulate what her life looked like I write about in particular this area where she talks about a loophole of retreat. And she had been trying to escape Dr. Flint for so long. At 19 years old, she fled his plantation, but she didn't get very far. She got to her grandmother's uh, quarters on his plantation and she ended up hiding in an attic. But this wasn't an attic, right? This wasn't like an attic like we know today with Christmas decorations and old light bulbs. It was a very small crawl space. It was essentially a gap between the outer wall and the inner wall. And she couldn't bend. She couldn't fit fully stand. She couldn't actually stretch her arms. And all she had was one little fold to look out at her children. She stayed in the attic for seven years. She said that in that attic, she said that was the freest she had ever been because she had chosen that site of imprisonment. It was a, a prison of her own choosing. And I write about this in the book to talk about all the ways that as we are fighting toward liberation, we're fighting towards something we're calling freedom, but it doesn't always mean that we're moving forward. We find ourselves in these liminal spaces, in these spaces where we're not moving at all, but we've absolutely escaped something. We've absolutely come away from something and we're on our way to something else, but we're in a waiting place. And I wanted to talk about freedom so people understand that it's not absolute. It's a process and we have to chase it every single day. You know, when I was reading this, I had this experience, and I hope that other people, and especially other white men who read this book, have this experience of being regularly made conspicuously aware of my whiteness. And what I mean by that is that there were places where things that should have been obvious to me came through in the text and became obvious to me. And I had this, of course, moment of things I hadn't considered. And one of them is you're talking about the difference between freedom from and freedom to. And it was such like a mind-blowing moment for me. And I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit because it was important and I would like to just have other people hear some from it. Absolutely. This is something I, I started teaching my young people in the course that is that this book is based off of. It's called Black Feminist Insurgent Politics. What I am encouraging my students to think about in this class is that when we read this literature, I want them to read it as theory, right? Theory is about understanding the language and the ideas. But I also want them to read it as practice, the way that they are employing these theories to actually get freer. 
that's practice. And so the idea of thinking of freedom in stages, being free from something, being free from an oppressor or an institution, is precisely what Harriet Jacobs did when she left that plantation. When she dashed in the middle of the night, was out of sight, was not able to be surveilled or found by the slave patrols, she was free from the institution that she had been in bondage to for her entire life. But she was not free to be a human yet. She still existed in this attic. She didn't have the freedom of her movement, the freedom of her body. She was not free to exist as a citizen. She had no citizenship. So in a lot of respects, I want folks to understand that we have to see freedom in its various stages in the ways that we metabolize it because it will look different for us at different points in our own lives, but also for different people. I grew up in the highly segregated Oakland Bay Area, which means that I didn't have many interactions with white people until I left for college. Even while my childhood overflowed with black women and black feminisms, I wasn't impelled to think about black feminism in an academic or even a formal sense. In truth, I just wasn't aware that any of this literature existed. I attended an elite private institution, but I never took a course on black feminism because none were offered. Right, I had a student who told me there's absolutely no way she could have been free in that attic. And I said, well, she wanted to be free from her slave master, and she was. So she absolutely was free in that attic. Now, she wasn't free to do everything she wanted to do, but she was getting there. So she absolutely has some sort of freedom. And I want folks to take from this project, from this book, that there's so many ways that we can think about liberating ourselves and living otherwise. I want this to influence folks. I want them to think differently. While we're on the topic of freedom, you also write that freedom is about collective imagination rather than institutional barriers. And this just blows my mind. It is so smart. Talk a little bit about that and what you mean. Yes. So one of the things, and this comes from a lot of conversations I had in graduate school, really thinking about these concepts. There are these ways that we think about freedom. One of my students said, I like to go to music festivals. And when I go to music festivals, I feel free. And then when we start to break down the role of capitalism and the role of gender oppression and racism and how the access to these types of freedoms are limited based on how one is oriented to power, that freedom looks a lot different. And so in this chapter, what I'm grappling with is that our freedoms can't actually be tethered to institutions and the ways of being that end up creating unfreedoms for other people, right? If our freedom creates scenarios or containers for entire groups of folks who are more vulnerable than us and who are more marginalized than us and creates barriers and obstacles for them, then we shouldn't call that freedom. We are complicit in institutional oppression. And I say that as someone who has to grapple with that too, right? I absolutely work at a large, predominantly white institution, right? As an abolitionist, that's complicated. It's complex. So the goal here is for folks to really sit with the challenge of all of this, because it's just the truth. It's just a fact of the world we live in. And I want folks to hold it so that we can actually think about ways to get free together so that we're responsible for each other's freedom and not just our own. Let's talk about Ida B. Wells. She was a journalist. She was one of the founders of the NAACP. She wrote powerfully about the evils of lynching in the late 19th century. 
She even owned a newspaper. What did Ida B. Wells teach you? Ida B. Wells is um, probably one of the earliest Black women who taught me about telling the truth at great peril. Wells ended up taking care of her siblings. She was tasked with managing a household as a teacher after her parents passed away and was compelled to enter the conversation on lynching when she witnessed her own comrades killed by a mob. So she didn't start off, you know, wake up one day and say, I'm going to go and start talking about lynching. She actually had personal exposure. Her comrades ran what was called People's Grocery, and it was adjacent to an established grocery store that had been run by a, a white man in the neighborhood, and he didn't like the competition. So he antagonized them and brought plainclothes officers over to their store and, and started a gunfight. In the gunfight, they responded, protecting their store, but that's not okay, right? When you're Black, you can't respond. <laughs> you can't do that. That started an ongoing kind of uh, combative relationship between the group, and they went on the run. They were hunted down. The entire community, the whole Black community, was essentially questioned and tortured until they found these men. And when they found them, they lynched them very publicly as a warning to everyone else. And this was a major politicizing event for Ida because she realized that these lynchings were not rooted in the myth that had been so pervasive. The myth was that Black men were a danger to white women, which she called the threadbare lie, right? She actually realized in this moment and watching and then investigating so many other lynchings was that many of the lynchings that were happening to very powerful, wealthier Black people in the community who had the nerve to buy land or to get a nice petticoat or to get a carriage, right? People who were trying to come up out of the station of enslavement, which they had a right to do because slavery was codified as over at this time. And they would be lynched as a sign to other Black folks to not dare to actually try and move out of their station. And that's when she began writing about lynching and she did it in great detail. She wrote every single thing that happened. This is a red record by Ida B. Wells, originally published in 1895. The investigative journalist and activist Ida B. Wells spearheaded the anti-lynching movement in the United States. Expanding on her groundbreaking expose, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases from 1892, a red record used mainstream white newspapers to document a resurgence of white mob violence, finding that more than 10,000 African Americans had been killed by lynching in the South between 1864 and 1894. She did an incredible thing for American history. And that was to show the extent of white violence against black people in the United States after emancipation and after the Civil War and it laid the groundwork for understanding all kinds of things about the United States. She wrote about the backgrounds of the people involved, if there were women involved who lied about, for instance, the Black men who had been driving their carriage, and if they had asked them to enter into a sexual relationship. We know that consent was very complicated at the time. During enslavement, no Black person, especially Black women, could consent in or out of anything with a white person. There was no conception of consent. And after slavery ended, consent was still complicated, especially in the South. 
because you couldn't even stand outside unless you were owned by someone who owned your labor. So debt peonage ended up taking over folks' labor. So she essentially unearthed and revealed for the country that lynching had nothing to do with this threadbare lie, but actually had everything to do with white supremacy. And that was not popular. It wasn't well received by other anti-racist activists of the time, right? Why was that? She was too radical for them. Even folks who should have been on her side. The Mary Church Terrell is one good example, who was a prominent Black woman activist at the time. She was very well established. She was more elite. And she worked within the system. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois is another kind of example. There were a lot of folks who were working within the system, very highly educated folks. And Ida was like, we got to arm ourselves. We've got to take up arms and we've got to fight the mobs. And they were like, wait a minute, that's a hair too far. And she was disappointed when it was her own comrades and allies, Black folk, who excluded her originally from the write-up of founding members of the NAACP. It wasn't folks who we would consider combatants or folks who we would consider against her. It was actually people who had said they were in her corner. And that's part of what I wanted to bring out in the project is to show that these Black women, when I talk about the work that they've done and the peril and the consequences they face, it wasn't, there's not one target here. There's always this idea of people say, the oppressor. And I'm like, yeah, I tell my students all the time, who is that? <laughs> who is the oppressor? We all have the capacity to harm one another in these systems that we're all complicit in. And Ida is a great example of showing how even other Black women didn't stand on the side of justice when they had the opportunity. So we're now certainly more than a century, nearly a century and a half later after some of these writings were coming forth. And we still seem to be in a place where, particularly in the South, some of her writings may be challenged and even banned out of school libraries just for this idea of truth-telling. And so the idea of truth is being eroded in this country in a really substantial way. And I wonder if you think that there are lessons from Ida B. Wells' writing and life that we should be applying today in the defense of truth. I made sure I really wanted to talk about critical race theory in the book. It was important to me. And I wanted to talk about it in particular because there's two, what I identify as two core problems, right? We have an issue of specificity. And we have an issue of confidence in young people. There is this concern about critical race theory when most people don't even know what it is. These bans on certain books, these concerns about queer theory and trans theory and Black feminist teaching, most of the time there is this conflating of all of these things under critical race theory when some of them are not at all. I've seen books banned that were about young Chinese immigrants, and I'm very confused as to why, as if young Chinese parents don't have stories to tell in this country. Stories about young people navigating disability or their coming out stories are being banned in this country. And that to me is concerning because I don't know that folks who are doing the banning actually know why they're doing it. So I talk about that in reference to young people because part of what I enjoy about having a college classroom at a private university is that I can just tell the truth. And I trust my young people to get it. And they do. I think that when we talk about how to apply those lessons today, when we think about what Ida taught us, she risked her life to expose the truth. For her, the risk to herself was much less important 
than ensuring that our entire country was held to account for what was happening to an entire group of people. And I think that's this immense courage. So I find that when people are empowered with information, especially young people, they are courageous. I get to be in the classroom when they're in their most courageous time, right? I teach them about Ida and they get excited. I teach them that they're able to reclaim this truth, that they're able to go out and actually make a difference. And then they do. So I think in this moment, when we think about applying these lessons, we have to trust that when young people learn the facts of history, they will use them in ways that make the world better. You know, just because some of their parents are, doesn't mean that they're afraid. Tell us about Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh, Fannie Lou. So Fannie Lou Hamer, I really wanted to include in the book because I learned about unrespectability from Fannie Lou Hamer. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen. The president, Lyndon Johnson, he's not afraid of Martin Luther King's testimony. He's afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony. And this is a little bit different. People talk about being respectful. That's different. So respect, we have these performances of respect that we you know, portray based on our socialization and all of that. But there's respectable nature, which is about how we acknowledge other folks' assimilation instead of social norms, right? And behaviors that we think are typically middle-class, white-associated, heteronormative, respectable things are like classy. You know, when they say, oh, you've got no class, right? And what I really love about Fannie Lou Hamer is that she didn't care. She didn't care about any of that. Fannie Lou, she was very rooted in her community and her culture. She was a Mississippian from the beginning and she never changed. She was dedicated to fighting on behalf of poor Mississippians who were being exploited who were not being paid properly, who didn't have shoes to wear. She talked about not having shoes and not having food to eat. And she said, I still don't have shoes and I still don't have food to eat. And it's still not right. She meant to make sure that folks had the right to vote. And every time she got on the microphone, every time she got up to speak, that's what she had to say. And unfortunately, in her short life, she encountered so much institutional violence. One of the most prominent experiences is she was subjected to what's called a Mississippi appendectomy. People don't know this, but in this country, mass sterilizations were still happening to Black and Brown women as late as the 1970s and 80s. And they were happening without these women's consent. So they would come in, some of them would come in and give birth, and then they would have someone, they would tie their tubes or give them a hysterectomy without their permission. Or in other cases, they would come in for a completely unrelated ailment, and that would happen, right? So this was called a Mississippi appendectomy. One of the places where it was most prominent was in the American South, and this happened to Fannie Lou. This was a devastating experience for her. I bring it up in the book because it was also a way that these institutions were marking her body as criminal. 
as deviant as other to say, you don't even get to have children. We're taking away your right to childbearing. And it was important for me on my Black feminist journey because I have three children. I'm a Black lesbian woman. I am queer. And the ways that folks engage with your body when you are non-normative, when you are not heterosexual and you don't want to live the, you know, someone called me Miss the Mrs. the other day because it's just this such a desire to fit you into these buckets. You know, you are punished. And Fannie Lou was absolutely punished. She was beaten by police. She was humiliated in, in police custody. And so I talk about Fannie Lou's life to suggest that being unrespectable doesn't mean that we do not have worth. If our struggle for liberation doesn't include the folks that we consider deviant, if it doesn't include the folks that we consider unrespectable, the folks that you know we often see pushed to the margins, then that's not freedom. Fannie Lou Hamer said to us, nobody's free until everybody's free. We have to center the most vulnerable. Otherwise, we're not fighting for freedom. We're just fighting again for a type of freedom that only works for some and not for everyone. How much of what Fannie Mae went through, what Black women went through as far as this sterilization, this forcible sterilization, is at least in part rooted in the commodification of Black women's bodies? Do you see it that way at all? I do think it could be connected. I think that it comes from a couple places. I connected mostly to the kind of pseudoscientific ways that Western medicine has treated Black women as though we are incapable of feeling pain. You know, I talk about this in the book with J. Marion Sims using Black women's bodies as sites of experimentation, working on enslaved Black women's bodies to make all these gynecological advances, but never using anesthesia, doing awful, very painful surgeries on their genitals without any consideration of the shock and harm he was doing to their bodies. And then becoming one of the greatest, most well-known gynecologists because of it, statues commemorate him all over the country. So I think it's absolutely rooted in the commodification and the exploitation because they're rooted in the same things. They're rooted in the same massage noir that suggests that Black women are not the right kind of women, not the respectable domestic kind of women, that Black women are somehow more masculine, tougher, less susceptible to emotions unless those emotions are anger. They're all rooted in these very vile and harmful narratives that frequently leave Black women exposed to disproportionate levels of violence, both in our own communities and outside of them. Writing again about Audre Lorde, you talk about Audre Lorde telling you about self-care, teaching you about self-care. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I, I feel like I'm a, the constant cynic when it comes to anything popular. And so when the self-care movement happened five to seven years ago and everyone was using Audre Lorde quotes, and I was like, that's not how that goes, right? What people don't realize is that when Audre Lorde started talking about self-care, she was talking about that because she had been struggling with cancer. Her efforts toward discussing self-care publicly were a site of reclamation for all the labor she had already put in her life 
to support so many Black folk. And now she was looking at her own mortality. A litany for survival. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, for those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawn, looking inward and outward at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths so their dreams will not reflect the deaths of ours. I talk about this in the book as someone who I relate to her as a disabled person. I want to bring something else in that's been really, I've been sitting with this and sitting with this is I watched an interview with Alice Walker just the other day and someone was asking her about how she's retracted from the public sight. And she said that it's because she recently had a stroke and her stroke was related to how much work she had been doing in public and advocating for others and how she was really working on trying to hold some of that energy for herself. And so what I was trying to also really get into with that Audre Lorde chapter and with thinking about self-care is understanding that we have to, just as we advocate for others, we have to advocate for ourselves in this struggle. And I'm guilty of this, right? I know I read the books. I get it. I'm working on the praxis. I understand that Black women, we hold communities together. Angela Davis has written about this at length about the ways that Black women, even in, on the slave plantation, we held everything together. And in communities now, we hold everything together. The amount of unpaid labor that Black women provide in churches, in homes, in community organizations is astounding. The number of Black women behind the Black Panther Party, behind the SCLC, behind Martin Luther King himself is astounding. And so I wrote that chapter for and about Audre Lorde to really honor the underlying facts of why she was talking about self-care. She was talking about self-care because she was trying to reclaim herself. She was trying to keep something for herself that she had given away for so long. And it was almost like a warning to us to say, don't do that. Keep some for yourself. I'm listening, right? I'm listening to my foremothers. I'm hearing Alice Walker say, I have to step back because I had a stroke. I'm seeing Zora Neale Hurston pass away when she's only, what, 60 years old from malnutrition? Because I know that's something that happens to us. And that's an underlying kind of current of the book, that so many of these Black feminist teachers pass away so early because of the ways that they are extracted from. There are all of these incredible lessons, but we have so many people who either have not or will not ever learn them. How do we change that? I really, I think it's, I think it's actually much simpler than it feels. I love that answer so much. Yeah, I'm really hopeful about this only because of I teach this class and I've had so many different types of people take my class. I've got kids from all over the world, young people, older people. And sometimes I've got that nice like little college football player, white guy. And he's like, Hey, I just want to learn. And I'm like, cool, come on. 
and they have the best time. Every semester we have one white guy who like shows out and the whole class is like, yeah, you did that. You know, (laughs) Um, I think for me, what I've stopped doing is I've stopped going outside of my network to try and educate people. But what I've done is I've made the lessons available and accessible so that everyone else can take them, pick them up and show it to people who are in their networks. So for my young people who come from all over the world, who come from little rural towns in Texas and Kentucky, and also big cities in Ethiopia, right? They can now pick up this book and they can take it back home and say, hey, dad, (laughs) hey, Uncle Bob, look what I learned at school. When I logged onto the Zoom call, there were already seven youth leaders present. And their first question for me was, what are your motivations for filming and photographing these protests we've organized? I told them, I want to challenge the false notion that all protesters are angry and violent through my photographs and documentary shorts. I was so passionate about this project and excited to pursue it. And I thought that everyone on the call would feel the same way. But their reactions left me with a pit in my stomach. Did you speak with anyone from the Black Lives Matter community first to get context, they asked me? I admitted I had not. And it's funny because they come back and they tell me, yeah, I did that and it was really funny. They felt so awkward, but look what happened. I think part of it is that we all have to have a lot more courage. That's what I talk about at the end of the book when I say I taught myself patience. I used to feel a lot of um, shame around not having all the answers. And I felt like I needed to like, go fight the fight right now. I need to read the books and then teach all the people and convert everyone to a feminist. And that's what I'm going to do. But I figured out that's actually antithetical to the everything else I wrote in the beginning of the book. What I need to do is really focus in on myself and my community and really ensure that I live and I model the ethics that I'm speaking about. And I am a kind of person who's able to make this accessible And as some activists would say, delicious, make it delicious to other people, right? So that they want to know, like they want to understand. And that's what this book is doing. It's not preachy. It's not luxury. It's just a love letter. It's my love letter. And in the book with a whole section like, hey, this is just to start your journey. You don't have to follow my path. You don't have to do what I did. But here, in case you want to do some extra study, you got some Black feminist curiosity. Here's some sources you can go check out. If people are curious, that's all you need. You just need a little curiosity. And I'm confident that people have that. I think the young people in particular do. And I'm excited about it. So I would love to know what you think that white women and white feminists still need to learn from black women and black feminists. Hmm. I love this question. I'll start by saying, first, I've been surprised 
by the reactions of white women who've read this book, most of them have been floored. Most of them have been like, oh my gosh, wow, I feel so bad. How did I not know all these things? And because I did not write it to white women. So I think to answer that question, I'm realizing in seeing the reactions to this book that there is a texture to Black life. There is a deeper contextualizing granularity to Black living that I think a lot of white feminists don't quite understand. I think there's a granularity to Black life that unfortunately, because we are so isolated and we are so segregated, we don't have access to one another. And in my larger work as a political scientist, I do interviews with young Black people about how they experience threat in the United States. They keep saying to me, which is also comes out in our political theory literature, they say, I have to learn about white culture so that I can survive. It's necessary for me to understand how white navigate the world so I can navigate around it and make sure I come home alive every day. But it doesn't work the other way around. And I think for a lot of white feminists, because they also read the books and they're in the theory, they think they got it, but they don't have the practice. And the only way you get that is by listening to Black folk, listening to Black queer folk, to Black women, to Black femme folk. We've got to really sit with the granularity. And unfortunately, a lot of people, that's uncomfortable. I was just going to say, white women don't like to feel uncomfortable. They sure don't. And that's part of the process. That's part of the work. What did Brene Brown say? Courage is not about not being afraid. It's about being afraid and going and doing the thing anyway, right? And if we're not going to have a feminist courage, then I don't know how we're going to be feminists. I remember being at Fort Bragg and asking a group of special forces troops, give me an example, give me an example of courage that you experienced in your life on the field or off the field, or you saw in someone else that didn't require uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Right. And there was this long silence. And finally, a young man stood up and said, three tours, ma'am, there is no courage without vulnerability. Yeah. I don't think you can get to courage without the capacity to deal with uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And we've mythologized vulnerability. I saw an email just the other day as I was getting ready for this interview, and it was from a white activist telling us that Black women will decide this election, which in my head I was like, but they decide every election. Like, how are we still having this conversation where we're not recognizing that this is such an important electorate? And I'm just wondering why you think that is. Every single election cycle, we have this conversation about Black women saving democracy. Like, why don't you know that already? <laughs> well, a couple reasons. One is the hypervisibility slash invisibility of Black women and Black people, right? But unfortunately, some people like to double dutch when it comes to Black women. They hop in, they pay attention, and they hop back out. People really do enjoy to change the channel when things get uncomfortable. So every election cycle, we see this like shock and awe where it's like, what? Latinx people are going to vote in large swaths? This is, wow, amazing. Black women are still voting for the Democrats. So unfortunately, because folks are able to insulate themselves, they do it. That is an action rooted in privilege. And it's an action rooted in a choice to not necessarily be accountable to all people. 
I also think that this moment, unfortunately, that has really been exacerbated by Donald Trump, this moment of this thing makes me uncomfortable, therefore it's either not true or I can simply imagine that it doesn't exist, has become extremely dangerous for us as a political collective. Politics, it requires collaboration. This is the biggest group project we all are going to ever work in. And it's very disconcerting when folks don't realize that requires that we build scaffolding across groups, across contingencies, across our communities, that we actually do have an investment in one another. I think a lot of Black feminists understand that. I think a lot of folks at multiple margins of identity understand it because they have to. But unfortunately, a lot of folks who live in perpetual privilege, they don't have to grapple with that every single day. And so they choose to opt out. I also think, you know, we see we as white liberals every four years or so, you talk about building scaffolding and we don't necessarily build scaffolding. We maybe build like a really rickety rope bridge and we throw it over and tie it up. And then election day comes and we cut the ropes. Like as soon as we have people elected, that scaffolding goes away until the next election. We're like, black women are going to save us. But like, where the hell were we between then and now? And I know that there are lots of on the ground groups doing these work in communities, but where are we on a national level, right? Like, why are we not doing that? work. And I think that that's on us and that we as white liberals, we think we need the black women now and then we go away. And that's something that we have to like stop. It makes me bonkers every time I get this email of like black women are going to save us. I'm like, yeah, what are we going to do in between now and then? Jen, is there a most important lesson you took or want people to take from reading this book? Yeah, I think so. Even though it's not in the table of contents, it's the underlying lesson, the underlying lesson, which is the kind of catchphrase for the book, which is that Black women taught us how to listen and to work, and it's time for us to do both. That's the definition of theory and practice. And that's what I want people to take from this, that tons of lessons that we can learn from Black women. These are just ones that have led me on my journey, but I want folks to understand that this is not all. This is just the beginning. There are so many more. There are Black women in our lives who are teaching us. There are Black women at our jobs and our communities who we should be listening to and not mixing up with other Black women, right? Treating as individuals every single day, not overlooking and diminishing. And we need to treat those lessons as valuable despite the systems that tell us that their lives don't matter, that their lives are insignificant, that we should only tap them in every four years. We want them to save us from ourselves. Black women matter every single day. That's what I want folks to get from this book. Finally, what gives you hope? Oh my gosh, the young people. I wrote this book. We didn't talk about the origin story, but I wrote this book because I was in college at University of Southern California. I was an engineering major and I wanted to take a Black feminism class and I could not find one. They didn't have a Black feminism class. And I searched and searched and I gave up and I called my mother and I was like, mom, what were all those books you were reading by Black women? And she told me, and I wrote them on a sticky note, and I ran into Borders Books. This is when I lived in Orange County. And I ran to Borders Books, and I found Melissa Harris Perry's book, Sister Citizen. And it had a Black woman on the cover, and she had a flag on her head, a bald head. And I was like, what is this book? And I opened it, and I started reading about the Sapphire, the angry Black woman, the Jezebel, the overly sexed Black woman, the... Mammy, the asexual caretaker Black woman. And I started crying into this book. She started describing this crooked room that she said we smash ourselves into 
so that we can live in society. And I saw myself reflected. It sent me on a completely different path. I graduated, I got my engineering degree. I, I went off and um, worked at Disney, but then I changed paths and I became a political scientist. I went and got a PhD. I ended up reading Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. And I discovered someone named Kathy Cohen. Kathy Cohen was a political scientist at U Chicago. I went to U Chicago. She became my dissertation advisor. I found her in that book. Kathy Cohen and Wilson Harris Perry are friends. <laughs> so it ended up turning into a whole narrative for my life. And so my hope is that young people will pick up this book and they'll see themselves reflected and they'll see opportunity. They'll see a way forward for the future where they can think about a freer world and they can see themselves as a part of it. That's what happened for me. And I'm hoping it can happen for other people. Well, Jen Jackson, you give us hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. This is great. To prepare for these evenings and my weekly hosting duties, I taught myself how to cook. I wanted to offer something, a small gift to these women who brought so much warmth to my home. Rehearsal was at the end of the day, often after they had been working for hours and caring for children. Feeding them seemed like a kind and necessary gesture. By around the age of four, I could scramble eggs. At age eight, I tried my hand at baked chicken. Cynthia, this chicken is raw in the middle. Auntie Barbara told my mom one week as she pulled the meat from the bone, exposing the red vertebrae and tendons that were clearly undercooked. Jennifer, be careful, my mom scolded. Yes, mommy, I replied, feeling deflated. Don't be too hard on her, Cynthia. The chicken is seasoned so well, Auntie Barbara told her. You did good, baby. Just cook it a little longer next time and poke it with a knife to see if blood comes out, okay? She said as she leaned over to me her lipstick bright and smudged from the chicken. Yes, Auntie Barbara, I said, feeling determined to do better. Jen Jackson's book is a must-read. Not only is it an important history of Black feminism, it's a roadmap for imagining a country that works more effectively for all of us. It's also a reminder that so many of us white activists, and Ben and I, certainly not excluding ourselves here, very much need. Our ideas, our policies, our strategies need to be reimagined from the ground up, inclusive of Black, queer, disabled, feminist, immigrant, and all identities, stories, and goals, not just more weight to put on the scale every four years. Black women are teaching us so much. The question is, are we truly willing to learn? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.